As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Very, very fast Ducatis. Yamaha taking a step backwards to go forwards. Honda doing much the same physical worries at Aprilia but let's face it the big thing people are going to be talking about from the final MotoGP preseason test of 2023 is wings loads and loads of wings in places where you probably aesthetically don't really want them to appear on the MotoGP bike I'm Matt Beer I'm with Simon Patterson coming straight to us from the Portimao press room after the uh, last rider debriefs and Valentin Harunchi and we're going to dissect everything you need to know about the final MotoGP test of winter 2023 which took place over the past weekend at Portimao which is the venue for the season opener in just two weeks time the Portuguese Grand Prix so the thing that readers of the race this weekend have been most interested in numerically MotoGP wise is very much those wings um started with Aprilia uh decorating its bike with more and more outlandish uh, additions during the course of Saturday. So, Simon, talk us through what appeared on first the Aprilia and then the Yamaha. Because in, in our work Slack channel over Saturday in particular, it's just this sort of regular punctuation of pictures of things sticking out of MotoGP bikes making me and Val go, why? What is that? And what does it do? But, uh, yeah, give us a quick guide to what's what's been added. Kind of all started on thir- on Friday when Aprilia did their team launch and we got the first sort of really good unhindered look at the 2023 RSGP, uh, mainly because they wheeled two bikes out onto the track to do some photos and then left them unattended. And a couple of journalists got really up close and personal with them, which we don't always get to do. And they, they just, they look visually very, very different from some of the other bikes in the grid. Uh, they've got, you know, We've seen this evolution of front brake covers that initially covered a little bit of the disc to things that now cover almost the entire centre of the wheel, including the caliper. Uh, They've got massive carbon fibre pieces at the rear that run all the way up the exhaust to smooth off the airflow of that. And then obviously they've got that big boxy... uh, ground effect fairing that we've seen in a few people, other people try to replicate but really that Aprilia led the way on uh, through the middle of last season. Then um, thankfully they've got a, a very on the ball press officer who spent all weekend messaging us saying you should come to pit lane right now uh, every time something new appeared in the bike and there was a succession of new things. The first was uh, 
a new set of wings kind of behind the wings that are already on the bike, bolted directly to the front forks, which is something we've not seen anyone do anymore, any or before, and, and really seems like a really smart sort of exploitation of the loophole of a loophole in the rules that say that you know sort of dictate what the front wings are, but not anything that comes behind the front wings. So smart move, pretty obviously to create more downforce and a bit more stability in corner entry, which is where the Aprilia is already really good. Then we saw new wings appear on the rear of the bike. Um, there was two different variations of these, uh, one of them very much more noticeable than the other. Attached to the rear swing arm, pointing downwards, almost like uh, something we first saw on Tom Lutie's <laughs> Moto2 bike at Qatar in like 2017 for one test and then they were immediately banned um, and never raced. They, they were mounted on the rear seat unit of the bike, but, but essentially the same idea. And the point of them back then was uh, to try and sort of close the bubble of clean air that the bike creates so that there was a, a smaller effect created, you know, for other riders following. Not dirty air like we, you know, we talk about in Formula One, but just sort of closing the sort of egg-shaped bubble that a bike forms as it punches through the air. They also ran a second version of those that was more uh, tunnel-shaped, so attached to the swing arm, but not actually dropping down from it, just, just forcing the air through a certain pathway. Uh, and then the next thing to appear was a, a rather remarkable F1-style rear wing mounted to the top of the seat unit. Um, it's something that we saw them experiment with last year. Uh, Mugello, I think, uh, test rider Lorenzo Salvadori tried it. But the one that we saw here was a much more finished piece. Um, looked to be sort of 3D printed, but with a space left for the Dorna MotoGP onboard camera. Uh, which makes me think that this is something that they're very much going to try and use in races this year. At least at some point. Because there's a, a, a clever loophole again with the rules here where the, the rules state what the fairings can and can't be in terms of aerodynamics and the front wings but the rest of the bike is, is kind of left open because no one has really put anything on the rest of the bike yet so you can only change your main fairing once you can change all these other things all through the year and, and speaking to Alicia Spagaro after he tried it, he said it makes a huge difference in downforce to the extent that he initially thought that his, what he thought was arm pump problems was coming from how much extra corner speed they were carrying. Um, but he, he said, you know, this isn't something that they're going to use all season at every circuit. It's not something that they're necessarily going to use uh, all weekend at every circuit, at some circuits, but it's something that you can maybe bolt on for qualifying and take off again or that you can drop in at certain tracks and remove at the next one. Um, it, it, it very much sounds like they were experimenting, but they were experimenting with version two and version three of things that they're probably going to try and use this year. As I think Maverick Vinales joked, and I hate to misattribute jokes, but I, I don't have the time to check right now. But as he said, next one's going on the shoulder. <laughs> so on, on, yeah. on the rider, basically. Um, it feels stupid, and not stupid from Aprilia-like, because all the credit to Aprilia for doing, you know, all their aero development and aero pioneering. Clearly very smart MotoGP team, very proud of what it's doing. And it's, you know, there's clearly some proper engineering ingenuity there. But why do we have aero homologation rules if this is possible? What's What are we doing? What's the point? If 
Like there, the error homologation rules there for, for the front, basically, right? So if you can stick, you know, a full Christmas tree's worth of random garbage on the back of your bike, that doesn't save money for anybody. That's just, you know, money being spent in another way. I mean, the, the, the fundamental problem that we have here now is that MotoGP Aero has become something that has to happen for every team. It's become something that they are spending, I am sure, literally tens of millions of euros on across the board because they're hiring people, they're running wind tunnels, they're computing really, really expensive models of how these things work. And the MotoGP, FIM, ERTA, Dorna uh, rulemaking body that you know that kind of controls all this is using a metal aluminium box that they set around the bike to determine whether or not something is in compliance with the rules. They have been left behind so far you know we're we're talking about a situation here where teams are using supercomputers and the rule makers are using slide rulers to try and keep up with them and it, it's just going to allow this to continue and continue and continue to go down this weird wormhole of being able to spend a huge amount of money in aero but at the same time only being allowed to do it on bits of the bike and not other bits of the bike because that's the bits that can be controlled and unless you know, the, the championships organisers go out and hire really clever aerodynamicist, which is going to cost them a lot of money, and then have him set the rules, it's just going to continue this way. Um, yeah, it's it's a strange world. And we haven't even got to the, the weirdest bit of arrow that we saw this weekend. Like, it got worse on Sunday afternoon. Um, with, you know, with Yamaha debuting a, a rear spoiler a la Aprilia, but... If Aprilia's was off a Formula One car, then Yamaha's was off a Pike's Peak car. <laughs> this, you know, it looked like a coffee table. Um, it's unlike anything I've ever seen mounted on a GP bike before. And the, the, you know, the, the initial response in the paddock, on social media, and again, in our office Slack chat, was a mix of like incredulity and, and just like comedy. Because it looked comedic. That that's the point we've got to now. This is the thing, though, isn't it? We're we're at the. It's not so much about these individual wings. Like Yamaha's may not particularly be used this season, based on what Fabio Quartararo was saying afterwards. Aprilia's may come and go. This rear wing hasn't been seen since Mugello last year. This, but it's more about the change in MotoGP that's happening right now and the implications of it. This, this like you say, this wormhole has now been opened. The rule makers are are behind. It, Part of me finds it really, really exciting. It's it's a bunch of very clever people doing very clever stuff, finding grey areas, moving the whole design technology of the championship and of motorbike racing in general forward. And, and you know, the F1 putting wings on cars was long before all of our time, but we're getting to see that sort of dynamic shift in MotoGP. And, and that that's a bit of a thrill. But the implications for the racing and the spending are a little bit terrifying with this. It seems crazy to me that we've done so much work in MotoGP to create a relatively low-cost championship that's ultra-competitive and now we're at this point where we're about to lose all of that because no one wants to take action to, to slow down this aero, you know, Pandora's box that we've opened. It is ludicrously expensive, you know, as anyone in F1 will, testament, will provide testament to. The amount of money that you can spend on this is literally limitless. Um, but it, it's also creating a, you know, for one, 
It's creating a two-tier system where some factories are doing better at it than others. It's going to create a system where some factories are going to start the season with a better aero package and some are going to start it with an awful aero package and we're going to get back to like, do you remember Suzuki's disastrous 2017 season where they homologated the wrong engine? Eventually someone is going to homologate the wrong fairing and lose a season over it. And then the other thing that it's doing, that's always been something that MotoGP has been proud of, is it's kind of creating a two-tier system between the factories and the satellites again and removing a big advantage that the satellites have had in being competitive because they're not getting these latest aero packages. They're not as up-to-date as the factories, you know. Look at the difference between the uh, the RNF Aprilia and the factory Aprilia. It's huge now. We're, we're going to see the same thing with Ducati because already there's, you know, Ducati riders talking about how they're not going to have fairings to start the season um, that, that, that the others are using. I mean, the, the thing that, honestly, I'm, I'm coming from, at this from a from a weird maybe perspective but i'd almost i'd almost like the wings more if they like added or subtracted a second if that makes any sense <laughs> it does yeah because then you really you can tell who who did the really ingenious development thing because i mean fabio ran with that goddamn triangle wing and said he didn't really notice the difference riding uh he says it's not gonna appear anymore probably but they'll take a look and it looks it looks intricate enough to where i'd be surprised if it's limited to just one run and I'd be surprised if they didn't test it with Cal Crutchlow or someone. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it's such small margins that it doesn't feel like at this point all of that is such marginal gains that it, it doesn't make this huge difference to the bike's performances. Maybe it like it improves stability, but the the bulk of the aero work on that side feels like it's already been more or less done. So like honestly, at this point, I know we're we've opened this aero box and it's going to continue, but they, they need to tighten up the homologation screws. Like they need to have a, a have a good thing at what's happening because otherwise this is a this is a money sink that I don't. It doesn't feel like it excites fans. Like in in Formula One, that's how I feel because I also obviously I also cover Formula One and I see new aero appendages and I hate them all and they don't interest me anymore. <laughs> and, and, but it, like F one fans legitimately get jazzed for that those hunks of garbage but mojb fans don't want any of that so it's not it's not worth it yeah i mean and the other element of that as well it's not just it's not just visual it's not just money these are not good for the racing and that's something that became more and more apparent last season is coming under more and more pressure it's the sort of area that we saw being trialed today going to make make that situation significantly worse or is is had things got that far already last season that this won't make a huge difference on top of that? I don't think it's going to make a huge immediate difference, but it's just sliding further down that slope. You know, it, it's it's all making a cumulative difference. Um, and, it, it yeah, it's all going to continue. Um, I think without sitting down with uh, an aerodynamics engineer, which I'm going to try and do this week, and, and really looking at all these different elements and trying to put together how they all work in conjunction with each other, it's it's hard to tell if we're, you know, creating dirty air or, or anything like that that's going to make racing worse. But it, it's it's definitely driving a wedge between the teams um, in terms of performance. It's it's you know it's it's splitting the manufacturers. For what it's worth, you know, devil's advocate. A few riders do say that it it makes the bikes more stable, which you know helps them 
crash less, which we always want. Like basically anything that reduces crashes is good. Didn't really help this weekend because Port Mao is really windy and it looks like a lot of people are being particularly caught out by that. And Aero probably did not help in that regard because obviously there's a school of thought that the wind is having a bigger impact now with all the with all the aero appendages, and some riders again disagree. And generally, rider positions on aero seem to be quite conditioned by which manufacturer they ride for and how good that manufacturer is at aero. But I, I don't want to completely discard the argument of it, it makes the bikes more stable and keeps us a bit more safe, which I'm always for. But there's probably a more holistic, less look at this new hunk of plastic we brought approach that MotoGP can take to this. I mean, the flip side of that as well is that we we are sometimes quite short-sighted in terms of safety in that we hear riders saying things like, I'm, my bike is more stable under braking, so I'm safer. But what that doesn't take into account is that it then means they can brake 10 metres later and whenever they crash under braking, they're much closer to hitting the wall at turn one in Mugello. True. Uh, you know, that, that's the implications of it um, as well. And... and, and they haven't been properly examined, I think. We haven't looked at that sort of impact on it. Um, it is universal that some circuits, traditional circuits that everyone loves, are getting closer to becoming more dangerous or too dangerous because the bikes are getting faster. And there is no question that, that Aero has made the bikes faster. So, you know, so where is the point? Where is the point of balance between... They make the bikes a little bit safer to ride, but they make the bikes a lot more dangerous to crash. Uh, the solution is obvious. Make so much aero that the drag is absolutely massive and they cannot accelerate on the straights. And none <laughs> of the riders can get close to each other in battle because they've got Christmas trees all around their bikes. So, you know, clearly that's that's the way forward. Now, it's, it's it needs investigating from that particular viewpoint of that. Like, that's the only pro aero thing I at all have in my mind. Like, they don't... Do they visually offend me? Uh, I'll get over it. Whatever. But it's just... No, the, the Yamaha one visually offends me. <laughs> Fair enough. It, it did for like one second, but I don't, like, I don't get really easily visually offended, I guess. I, just, I guess I don't find things beautiful. It's a really weird psychological thing we've gone down. I love that. Uh, the root of, yeah. But it's just, you know, the money being spent. You can, you can give it to riders. They want more money. They've made that pretty clear with the sprints. Give, give all the aero budget to the rider bonuses. Power to the people. Yeah. <laughs> Problem solved. I, I, I think, though, with like, like you say, with the, the visual adjustment, we were speaking a few weeks ago when Honda stripped all its aero off, off its bike at the first test about how it looked much nicer. But both me and Val were like, it looks so dated now. MotoGP's moved on visually with their own way. It, it's almost happened. It's almost taken us by surprise, and you look back and go, "Oh, suddenly I'm, I'm much more used to a bike with wings than than without." And I feel like in three or four years' time, we'll be thinking, "Hang on, MotoGP bikes look so strange when someone knocks their rear seat wing off," rather than thinking, "What the hell is that thing sticking up every rider's bum?" I mean, it's, it's Formula One and Halo, isn't it? Yeah, like we don't notice it anymore. It's not there. I, I for one can't wait till we get to the point where every rider needs a step ladder to get onto the bike. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked about how uh, how Yamaha added uh, a very ugly new wing that didn't necessarily make a difference but one thing that did make a difference for Yamaha on the final day of the test was not completely binning everything it had been doing but actually going back to some 2022 settings and working with those and finding that those plus new engine equals actually massive performance so 
On Saturday, we had Fabio Quartararo saying Yamaha is not ready. I don't feel good and sounding like Yamaha was going to start probably third best, if not worse. And then by the end of Sunday, and in, in, in Quartararo's own words, massive step, found a second per lap of uh, qualifying style pace. Yamaha's back in the hunt. More than a second. 1.3 seconds between push laps on Saturday and Sunday. It's a huge amount because he clearly, like from everything he said, he was trying on Saturday and it's, it's just a monumental amount. And you say they've not discarded everything. I don't, I don't know the exact settings they've reused, the exact, you know, arrow, et cetera, that is coming back, isn't coming back. But it's as good as that lap time must feel. And it, it was a hell of a lap time. It must feel weird after all this winter to go back to old stuff with the new engine that you already had at the start of the winter and just be immediately miles faster. Uh, Fabio was ended up, what, like three-tenths off Beko? I mean, that's not ideal. That's not probably not where he wants to be. But it's, I mean, it's just, he was in so much trouble on Saturday. Yamaha looked awful. I, I looked at his uh, single lap versus a Maverick Vinales sprint run. And Maverick Vinales, what, 12 lap, 10 lap sprint run was quicker. And that should not happen. That's weird. And obviously, they've rectified that now. So they'll at least be competitive going into the season, at least at Portimao with Fabio. So honestly, the title chase is not dead on arrival. And on Saturday, you could absolutely convince yourself that it was. Yeah. I mean, two of the, two of the, the sort of the moments in the weekend uh, regarding Yamaha that stand out. Um, I, I asked Franco Morbidelli on Saturday afternoon, you know, is the one thing that you have as a prom as, as a bit of promise, a bit of hope here, the fact that the engine is now fixed, um, because everything else essentially can be fixed in season. You can bring new frames, you can bring new swing arms. You might start a bit behind, but you can fix it. You can get it working. And uh, he, he was so happy. He said he hadn't even thought about that, but he was so happy about it. He hugged me after the debrief. <laughs> <laughs> like you know that, um, and then the 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 other thing was was talking to Fabio Quartararo on Sunday evening, where you know, he is just very very aware of how Paco Bagnaia's 2022 season started. Um, he's very very conscious that it's okay in a 42 race season to start on the back foot for the first few races, um, and and to know that there's still more potential in the bike to come. Um, he, as far as he's concerned tonight, he's found, regardless of the difficulties that winter has brought, he's found the one thing that he needed, which is the ability to not lose places in a straight line because the bike is faster. And, and everything else everything else, kind of has to be secondary to that because of how long he spent moaning about how that was the only thing that they needed. Um, he, he would have looked a bit stupid in front of Yamaha if he'd said, well, they've made the bike faster and now I can't ride the thing, those idiots, because it's, it's what he's insisted upon. Um, but yeah, the, the turnaround from going backwards is it's something we've seen others do in the past. Mark Marquez did it in 2019, right before stringing together the, the biggest winning margin in MotoGP history that year. Um, and, and I think... It's there for Quadraro now. It's 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 going to take some time, but he's not lost the championship. Just just weird that it took so long, really, because you'd think that's a pretty pretty obvious thing to try almost first. I guess you have the new engine with extra KPH, 
have a look at what it does to your existing already quite good package that was basically decent at everything except the top speed. But, you know, I, it's a lot more sophisticated than that, obviously, and complicated. And as you mentioned, Frankie, let's address the elephant in the room. He's had a terrible test. Uh, very, very bad. Um, much less optimistic than the rest of his off-season. And I, I don't really know where he goes from there. He was six-tenths off Fabio on a single lap. Uh, the first day before Fabio's breakthrough and after Fabio's breakthrough, that an extra few tenths added on. From what I've seen on his race runs, they don't. If if those are race runs, they're bad, really bad. Um, he will. He does not want to follow Fabio's sort of tear everything down and go back to the 2022 settings method because Frankie's 2022 was bad, and he clearly. Going by his end of season, he was hoping for a big step from new stuff that's not just the engine, but all sorts of other new stuff. And we don't know what the exact, again, what the exact specific components are, which of it he can still use, which of it he can go back on. But he's just, for him, going back to things is not really an option, as he put it, which is a problem, I think is a real problem because like, that's probably the one thing he didn't want to see is seeing Fabio make that leap forward through a return to a year in which Frankie does not want to return to. Uh, just to, to pick up on one thing you said earlier on there, Val, um, you said that you know there's, there's maybe reasons why they didn't go back to the old stuff at the very, very beginning. Um, and I, I, I think maybe they're not as complicated as that, as any technical reason. There is still a certain amount of Japanese reluctance in some factories in this championship that year is always better. And we've seen other factories, other Japanese factories, make the exact same mistake in the past, where if something is new, it has to be better until the rider basically has a temper tantrum, rips it off the bike, and discovers that they were right all along. Um, you know, again, that Marquez example that we used—that I think Cal Crutchlow spent basically that entire winter testing program telling them that they needed to get rid of the new era and go back to the old stuff—and it turned out at the end he was right. Um, yeah. There's an element of that to this, and I think that's perhaps part of the reason why the uh, European factories have made more of you know the massive loopholes in the MotoGP rules. And yeah, just, just a final note: Fabio's sprint race simulation on the final day. Uh, this is a track where he obviously dominated last year, and it, it, he does not expect to be f fighting for the win at Portimao. I think, as far as he he's putting it, or certainly he's not expecting to be anywhere near optimum in the first few rounds, even though total crisis, it looks like, has been averted. But our sprint race simulation is really good. Uh, you just look at it, it's 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 quality stuff. And it, it there's less drop-off than for Peko. There's, I think, sometimes still in the bag compared to what Peko Banyaya did. It'll be competitive. They're, they're Like, on his side, they look good now, especially at least for Portimao. Let's see, obviously, other less Fabio favorite tracks, but looks good. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Of course, the problem for Quattararo and Yamaha is that even with an improvement like they found at the end of the test, they've got an absolutely fearsome rival to try to topple. Ducati had seven out of the top eight bikes on the final day of testing. It didn't. Ducati didn't even really have to improve over the winter, such was its margin across 2022, but it does seem to have found more pace. And particularly Peko Bagnaia, the reigning champion, seems to have found a, a frightening amount more pace over the winter. So let's pick up on the seven out of the top eight thing. Uh, it could have been eight out of the top nine, but Fabio Di Antonio had to miss the final day of testing because he knocked his head while falling on Saturday. Uh, and he laid the blame at uh, Portimao's like heavy rocks gravel that he described as, if we're going to race like this, we might as well just go to Monaco because that's going to be more entertaining. Yes, Simon? Uh, just to cut in there briefly, I heard a rumour tonight that the gravel, which came under a lot of criticism from him and from Alicia Spagaro, uh, will be replaced in time for the race. Oh, wow. So clearly, a fuss has been kicked up, and clearly... I mean, either a fuss has been kicked up or there are liability understandings. Like, like somebody realised, oh, can't, can't have that. That might not be good. Because, you know, Dijan Antonio did apparently get concussed. Uh, we didn't see the accident. I've seen his helmet. Yeah, yeah I've, seen, I've seen photos of his helmet too. Not not great. Um, but yeah, so it could have been eight out of the top nine because he's made very good progress. And it's ultimately we've, as much as has happened this preseason, we've kind of returned to end of 2022 in a way. But maybe Ducati has become a little more compressed. Now, what I'm what I'm saying by that is all of them are still really good over one lap. Like stupidly good, spectacularly good. So, so good that basically every other manufacturer is going to be in massive trouble to get into Q2. That good. But they've, the thing that they've done is they've compressed on race pace, as far as we can tell. But all that said, as, as, as Matt has pointed out, uh, Peko Bagnaia still ahead, named basically unanimously as the title favorite by anyone who was asked. Uh, as, as Mark Marcus put it, if you look at testing, he's ahead by far. Um, it's pronounced over one lap. He murdered the lap record. It's seen on the race runs, although the gap obviously over, over a race run will never be as big. Uh, but yeah, yes, you know what? Uh, MotoGP testing can be deceptive. And I, I am fairly encouraged about the season after looking at the long runs, but we do have a title favorite, I think, at this point. One of the one of the most visually telling things that I saw all weekend was uh, we were doing uh, the media debrief with Fabio Quartararo while Paco Bagnaio was out doing his fast lap, and he looked up at the screen as that lap time clicked up on the timing screens, and his jaw literally dropped. Like they they know that Ducati are the people to beat, but the pace that Bagnaia has found this weekend is just something exceptional. Um, there are other Ducatis who are fast as well, obviously. There are a lot of other Ducatis who are fast, but there's none of them who've delivered quite the same test and performance as Bagnaia. 
all around because he's he's incredibly fast on one lap. He's incredibly fast in long race simulations. He's incredibly fast on sprint race simulations. He's incredibly fast on, you know, sort of exit laps. He's just ridiculous everywhere. He doesn't look like someone that's got a single weakness. Uh, we spoke to Jack Miller, who obviously probably knows Peko Bagnaya as well as any of his rivals in terms of all the time they've spent together as teammates. Um, he said he followed him on track for a very, very small amount of time because uh, he couldn't keep up with him. And he said, you know, he just looks flawless on the bike. But he also said that that apart from that, in the you know when they've bumped into each other in the paddock, he looks like, uh, in Jack's words, a different person. He says he's he is so much more confident in how he carries himself and how he's going about his business. Um, Miller actually described his confidence level. Uh, not just to the end of 2022, whenever he put together his championship winning run, but also to the end of 21, when uh, Bagnaya had that amazing run of form that made us all think that he was the you know the guy to beat coming into 22. And then he had a, a disastrous winter testing program because they brought a new bike and it took a few races to get up to speed. But you know, there's just none of that. This is when when riders and teams talk about carrying forward the momentum from one season into another this is what they want this is what they're talking about wanting to do uh, and i don't know if i've ever seen anyone in MotoGP do it as completely this year as bagnaya has let's let's go through some of the other ducatis because there's a good chance they will be the ones we're relying on for a title fight um teammate Danea bastianini's had a weird test he's had some technical issues on the on the first day that cost him valuable time. So he spent it sort of playing catch-up and he's already playing catch-up because in Sepang he was not as comfortable as Peko. Uh, towards the end, that said, you know, the sprint simulation he did was quite decent. Like he's, assuming he has a bit of room to grow because of the issues and the fact that he's having more of an adaptation period, he's going to be there. He's, you know, he's a factor. Um, Jorge Martin, who keeps being left out of title favorite conversations for some reason could it be the 8000 crashes well in good race positions it might last be the 8000 crashes it, it it absolutely might be that but like i have to tell you one lap pace there's no question about never ever no never and has, i really never has yeah been. And i really like this sprint race run and the fact that the sprints are here i he's gonna be in the mix i don't like the i i think he's a very interesting face to look at this season we'll find out early on through the early races how much you can you know keep it all together but the the raw pace isn't just there over a single lap he can do a good sprint and from what we've heard from him also the used tire pace is really really good and i i i am inclined to believe him and he's over the moon with the engine so much happier with it than with that gp22 engine final spec sort of thing that banyaya rejected that martin was saddled with and clearly grew to hate and the final Ducati to mention, Alex Marquez, man. Ooh. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Very, very good throughout. Constantly towards the top of the timesheets. Constantly having to play down expectations in media sessions and tell everybody to keep calm. Clearly missing still a bit over one lap, I imagine, which is a very Alex Marquez thing. We also saw that at Honda. But he described himself as not in competition for victory or podium, but the top five. If if you know if they immediately follow the test with the race, I I'm not sure what he saw because his pace is 
good. And it's like, it's maybe podium good. Maybe he knows something extra that, that we don't. Maybe I misread something. Again, I had to go really quickly through through all the all the race runs, sprint runs before the start of this podcast. So maybe I carried a carried a one somewhere wrongly. His pace is great, man. It's really good. It looks it looks like podium face in the sprint race at least. And he's he can get his elbows out in races. We've seen some really good early charges from Alex Marquez at Honda. Very interesting. Yeah, the whole paddock is bigging him up. Uh, you know, he, he committed his debrief yesterday, and, and kind of his first words before he anyone even asked us a que- asked him a question was like, "Okay, calm down. Like I've spent all day saying this to everyone that I've met, but calm down, because I'm calm, so you have to be calm." Because everyone is bigging him up, um, from his rivals to his team, to his teammate, uh, to his brother. Everyone is talking about his potential this year, and that you know. That's quite refreshing, actually, after a really, really difficult end of last year in particular. Um, but I, I still think, um, you know, we talk about all these names and we talk about title contention. I don't see any of them as being genuine title contenders to Peko Bagnaya. Oh, no. Um, no. The, the only way that these guys can be title involved is if Quattararo does have a good season, if Mar- Marquez does have a surprisingly good season, um, if Alicia Spagaro and Maverick Vinales have maybe surprisingly good seasons, um, the, the role that these guys will play is taking points off Bagnaya, especially early on in the season. Um, you know, his, his biggest issue right now from a fellow Ducati rider affecting his title will be the ability of Luca Marini, Marco Bazzacchi, Fabio Di Gentonio, Alex Marquez, Johan Zarco, um, Jorge Martin and Enea Bastianini to all be all to be podium contenders in sprint races and in long longer races too in the first four or five rounds I should say when I say no I mean the GP22s I don't think can be a, a realistic title threat I would I am not ready to anywhere near like rule out or even play down the chances of Bastianini and Martin I think I think they can be a long-term pain for Banyaya this season, absolutely. But yeah, that's we'll we'll see in the early races how the point standing situation conditions things. Well, this is it though on on kind of ability and pace. Absolutely, Bastianini and Martin should be should be title contenders. But from everything you said about how Banyaya is carrying himself, from the fact that he was so confident at the end of last season and. All he asked her over the winter was, don't mess this package up. Don't do anything too radical. Just let me keep going with this effectively. And it just feels like Ducati has managed to add a little bit extra, but it's done it without destabilizing anything around Banyaya's performance. And so as brilliant as Martin, and okay, I do mention his crashes quite a lot, but I think that's more that's purely as someone who actually really rates Martin and is quite excited by what he can bring to MotoGP, just the amount of times so went, oh, can you just stop it when he crashed in races last season? But yeah, as good as Martin and Bastianini are, they 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 haven't got this, like you say, Simon, this momentum that Banyaya can carry. So every Ducati gain is almost worth double for Peko because of the kind of mental and comfort p- position he's already in. So yeah, Ducati to me has one title contender and a bunch of people who could become a headache for him, but then they're not going to beat him to a championship. Um, in terms of Alex Marquez, as I as I said to you both uh, earlier in the weekend. Uh, I did mention a few podcasts ago about the idea of Alex being the Marquez brother who wins a MotoGP race this year, and you both laughed at that and pointed out the existence of Austin and Saxon Ring races on the calendar as like 
where Mark Marquez will just win whatever Honda gives him. I haven't quite given up on that bet of Alex being the the winning brother yet. Let's uh, uh, let's let's keep. I'm going to demand a clip of that to be kept in reserve just in case <laughs> we we need to deploy it. So until until Yamaha found its pace at the end of Sunday, we were all thinking that the manufacturer most likely to be a headache for Ducati was Aprilia and. It feels like that still stands, even despite Yamaha finding a bit. Aprilia still feels like it goes into the, the season as second best. Yeah, but just, you know, they had a, a, a bad final day with their two their two factory riders. Aleish uh, Spargo had what you know what what Simon referred to as suspected arm pump. Aleish now says is fibrosis. So he's done some ultrasounds basically, and they found some fibrosis that's pushing on the muscle, so he can't sustain any runs basically and even that he was he was okay over one lap so and he was he was good on previous days he was good through the preseason maybe not quite up to the ultimate potential you'd expect but he, you know he'll be fine um as long as there's no physical ramification from the surgery which he if he does have shouldn't be too serious he says as long as there's no physical impact from that for for Port now Maverick Vinales had an... Well, the only thing with that, though, is that he's if he's having surgery this week, he's got Portimao with sprint race and main race and straight into Argentina Yeah. a week later with sprint race and main race. So that's, okay, you've got 42 races, but that's, not, that's four of them. It's not fantastic. Potentially compromised quite yeah. quickly. I mean, it, it probably is like one of those, like, because the arm pump surgery recoveries are pretty fast. So you'd expect also this to be pretty fast, but it, it can be a complication. He's a fit guy, though. From what I understand about what what's gone wrong, basically he has some scar tissue that's built up inside his, the muscle in his arm, uh, and it sounds like the surgery will be kind of a keyhole procedure, cut a little hole, go inside, remove some of that scar tissue, um, so a small puncture wound, not much in the way of, of sort of swelling afterwards or anything like that, so hopefully, you know, it's, it's not too bad. Um, if you remember back to Fabio Cuadraro's last arm pump surgery, he went a different route from the way that the guys normally do it and had a keyhole procedure instead of the, the sort of the big slit that leaves a lot of racers with scars in their forearms that you see. And as a result, his recovery was basically, you know, he was back in, on a bike in like 10 days with no physical problems whatsoever. So if it goes that way, no, it's not the end of the world. Um, Maverick had a really good off-season apart from the final day where, I mean, it was not specified. He didn't go into detail, but basically he said they rode all day with a bike issue that they only understood once they tried the second bike. So the final day was a write-off, which is never good because you lose, obviously, an extra day compared to everyone else and you will be racing at this venue. But assuming that's figured out and worked out, um, what he showed on Saturday, so the first day of the test, was good, really good. And I think he'll be really, really competitive. Uh, he's, you know, he's in a positive mindset. He knows the Ducati is a fair bit ahead, but... Otherwise, the Aprilia is there to, to mix and box with basically everybody else. Um, and Simon, you want to shout out the RNFs? I mean, they had a, a really, really strong test. They had the sort of test that we've become accustomed to Ducati riders having when they move on to year-old machinery and all they have to do is put tires and fuel in the bike for a year. Um, they were super strong. Um, Miguel Oliveira, obviously home favourite here, knows the circuit very well, is a past winner here. And he put together the sort of really strong, really consistent test that uh, I think the race promoter was hoping that he was going to have. <laughs> um, that, that, you know, everything went well there. On the other side of the garage, though, I think that's where we've seen the real transformation. 
because Raul Fernandez has went from being this petulant, unhappy, angsty teenager figure that he cut for most of 2022 and has reverted back to the smiley, happy guy that you know almost won a Moto2 championship in 2021. He's like a different person. And a happy rider is a fast rider. That They've found a way to make him happy again, although I, I fear that the main way as I look around the room to make sure the KTM press officers have in fact left <laughs> the main way that they've done that is to just not have him riding a KTM for KTM anymore mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know but he's he's out of that environment that for whoever's fault was toxic for him and it, it's paying off he's he's going to be a maybe the surprise performance of this season I think along with Alex Marquez there's like there's like half of Raul Fernandez's brain that goes, okay, maybe don't try to fire any parting shots towards KTM, and another half that goes, absolutely do it at every single <laughs> opportunity. And either of those sides wins out about 50% of the time. Um, yeah, look, he's already much faster than he was on the KTM. Uh, it's just, and he, he will not stop emphasizing how much more he's enjoying life. Like to a point where... I don't know. Is that a thing or is that a rom-com stereotype? Is that something you do when you've split up with somebody and found somebody new? You try to put on like a face and act extra happy to make that previous person feel worse? I don't think that's what Raul Fernandez is doing, but he's certainly not really sparing KTM's feelings in this particular divorce. Let's put it that way. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. So we talked a little earlier about Yamaha not binning as such, but just going back to what it had at the end of last season and realizing that the more powerful engine, that was just fine. Um, Honda is another team that went through a similar process, except it felt like the end result was a little bit less productive, but at least it wasn't as bad as if it had persisted with everything it had tried that Mark Marquez didn't like. So Val, what's gone on at Honda? It just it's, It seemed like Mark Marquez has tried dozens of packages in order to find out that the one he was happiest with was the one that he didn't like and still doesn't really like five months ago, but it's not he hates it less than he hated other Honda things. If you if you put all the all the mark statements together, that's exactly what it is. You've you've hit the nail on the head there. He tried what is it, four different bike versions in Sepang, picked the one that's closest to Valencia. He had an extra updated version of that. So like the same version, an updated version. He discarded the updated version apparently almost immediately. So he is pretty close to where it was at Valencia, which means none of the issues that were there at Valencia will have been meaningfully addressed by hardware. But it also, like, the impression was like, okay, I've run out of time. This is what I have, and I have to maximize it now. Now, the good part of that is that every time you see a sort of half-decent, semi-decent lineup, lap time from one of the other Honda riders, you mentally tack on a few tents and go, okay, so Mark can do that. Mark can be there. So if, you know, if Joan Mir or Alex Rins lapped eight tenths off, okay, Mark can be four tenths off. And not to, not to disrespect new signings, there's an adaptation process there. I think that calculation is accurate. And I think Mark never 
shows his hand in testing. Not through any some sort of sandbagging reason or whatever, but just because, as he puts it, it really takes a lot of concentration and effort to get to his maximum with the things he does on the bike. So he saves it for, basically saves it for a race weekend. So I think going from the times he set, even though he's out of the top 10 on lap times and the three Hondas of Alex Rins, Juan Mir and Mark Marquez are very close together. And even though his race run was just only sort of okay, I think he'll be all right. He'll be in the mix, but not for victory. Sort of in the same mix that he's been for much of 2021 and 2022. It's not ideal. And without, like if we went from 2019 straight to this, it would have been a catastrophe. Would have been a disaster. But it feels logical right now. It feels kind of like the natural order of things. And it's up to Mark and Honda to make that past reality a reality again. The trouble with that, though, is... I, I get that there's a lot to be said for getting back to a familiar bike and making the best of what you've got, not overcomplicating with changes and stuff. But everybody else who's doing that over the winter is doing that on a package that broadly worked. Whereas what we're looking at with Honda is Marquez settling for something that he knows he's just going to have to improvise the hell out of to to get it anywhere near. And this doesn't this kind of complete circle doesn't bode well for Honda's chances of getting anything sorted with development over the next year because if they couldn't do it with a whole winter of work now what hope is there until they find out why they're going this wrong in the first place and and you know we've talked about this in previous podcasts now they're, they're stuck in this kind of vicious circle where they've got what looks to be a fully fit Mark Marquez who's able to perform on the bike, which is good, because that means that he'll drag the bike further forward than you know where it probably should be. But at the same time, if he feels like the bike is, is hindering him, holding him back, it means that his head's going to be turned for the future. And you know, they're, they're in a world of trouble at the minute with Mark Marquez. Where are they without him? Uh, they're nowhere. Completely. And Although, I would say the reassuring thing is with that is we're not looking at a difference between Mark Marquez and Mir and Rins being permanently as big as it could be right now. He's had 10 years of getting used to all this and they've just they've just turned up five minutes ago effectively. So at least Honda has more strength in depth backup. But I also take your point that Mark Marquez is the only person who's made Honda achieve anything in all these years. I, I did not clock I did not clock a meaningful difference in various lap times, both single lap and also from what I saw in the various sprint-esque simulations between Mark Rins and and Mir but so you know my I'm just assuming that Mark has a little bit extra in hand because that's just normally how how he operates but it's it's a good sign because Mir and Rins have a lot of a lot of ways to grow and they're two really good reasonably young riders Mir doesn't sound entirely comfortable right now but he's not hopelessly adrift he's gonna you know he's gonna have some hard days because even not being hopelessly adrift there's again 15 million Ducatis in front. So you're going to have to settle for some, you know, 11th, 12th, 10th, 9th. And you're just going to have to live with that and accept it. But it's not, it does not look hopeless. And Mark said something interesting. He said that the feedback from him and Mir was basically more or less the same, which is good for Honda. And he didn't, I don't think he meant it the way I mean it, but it is good for Honda because they need to listen to Jean Mir as much as they do to Marc Marquez because those two riders are on different timelines. And I do, I do very much take the point that there is a lot of 
reason to build around Joan Mir long term. Um, one person who is hopelessly adrift, though, is Takanakagami. Like, his test couldn't have been any worse, I don't think, um, than it was. Uh, he's, he's complaining about no confidence, he's complaining about no feeling. He, you know, as much as he says uh, he's physically recovered from the end of last season, his hand still looks you know, like it was just hit by a sledgehammer this morning. Um, it, it, it's, it's immediately looking before the season has even started, like the decision to keep him on instead of essentially forcing Ayagur into that season and jump-starting his MotoGP learning curve uh, you know, earlier than he wanted it to be was the wrong one. Um, and I, I think we're going to see Nakagami sort of perpetually at the back of the grid this year. And you know what? He, like, his sprint race simulation was, and this will sound like the highest praise, it was not disgusting. It was... <laughs> It was much Not disgusting. Yeah. It was much wow. better than what I expected from seeing him towards the bottom of the ti- uh, timing screens for ninety nine point nine percent of the test. There's there's something like he's maybe found a little bit of something, or there's something there. But it's in in current MotoGP is just not going to be enough for anything meaningful. I fear, like he's not he's not so much hopelessly adrift as he's too far adrift for modern MotoGP right now. Which is a shame. Well, it's not just it's not just the pace deficit, which is too big for modern MotoGP. As we've gone through this podcast, how many other riders are actually struggling? Okay, Morbidelli is. Basically, no Ducati riders are. No Aprilia riders are. So straight away there, that's like, that's that's Q2 filled basically everywhere. You're right. And then assume that three of the Hondas are doing relatively okay. Cause, You're right. Yeah, and then suddenly Nakagami isn't even getting anywhere near, anywhere near points in a series where the top 15 score and there's 22 bikes on the grid. Uh, no, no, in half the races this year, the top nine score. Well, yeah, I'm not counting that as... <laughs> but but it's, you know what I mean? It's, it's another yeah, scoring yeah. opportunity where he's even further away. Completely. There will yeah. be more variance at other tracks because obviously what this situation creates is everyone is artificially bunched up by having two extra days to get closer to the, their limit. And their limit is apparently quite similar up and down the grid. Well, not like similar competitively, but you know, like within a second, which is for me, that's quite similar. A second does not feel like much, even though it also can feel like an eternity. But yeah, no, you're right. You're, you're completely right. And that's a very good way to look at it. The problem is nobody's really struggling, except for some people are struggling and we're about to get to those some people. Yay. Yes, there's one manufacturer left and we're... We try to not like tick a box of let's talk about everybody on the, on the podcast, but actually there's five manufacturers left. There's two, two-ish in great shape, one getting there, one not really getting there, but not as bad as it could have been. And then there's KTM. And KTM has had a habit over the years recently of testing not looking great, being quite low down the timesheets, but making kind of positive noises about it. And then things turning out sort of okay, but in a slightly treading water way. What is the situation this winter? You've already described it. They're basically exactly there again. Um, on one hand, they, they've come out of this test actually quite positive because they spent a lot of time in this test putting stuff together. Sepang was all about new parts. Here was all about making the new parts work together. And the extent and the resources with which they have to do all that you know, it goes as far as Jack Miller admitting today at one point that they were rewriting the, the software that runs the bike between exits. Yeah. Like they had a software engineer engineer rewriting code before he went back out. 
that that's you know that's pretty pretty big commitment and i know from talking to some of the team that you know they've been finishing at like midnight here uh in the test we we're, we're uh staying at the circuit and there was a a bike that sounded suspiciously like a ktm running last night after midnight so they're putting in the hours and miller was of the opinion today very much that they've got a huge amount of data to go away and crunch that they've got the people and the the time to crunch it before the first round here and that they'll come back here in particular he he sort of specified that they'll come back to portimao and he thinks they'll have a much better package his worry is from someone who's you know raced against ktm and seen how they work is how that's going to last all season and whether or not we're going to have another one of these KTM up and down seasons where they're really good at some places and really bad at others. And honestly, based on the evidence we have right now, which is what happened in winter testing, you've got to say, yeah, we're probably going to have another one of those years for them. When I say, like, when I say I, it feels to me like KTM's had a, a bad test, again, this is, it's important to remember there are no bad bikes in MotoGP right now. In the hands of Brad Bender, the KTM here went... Uh, three tenths below the previous lap record. Binders dragged a seriously great lap time out of that bike, which means by default, the bike is not that bad. It, 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 it has to be pretty good. But I just, that was one thing. And I basically, from what I've seen on the, on the timing screens, I didn't like any of the other things I've seen. And nothing that comes out rhetoric-wise from KTM has been massively encouraging. Uh, KTM factory team manager Francesco Godotti has repeatedly emphasized both in Sepang and here that they are missing a few tents and that they're not entirely happy with what they are. KTM is never massively happy or massively unhappy. So you sort of maybe extrapolate a bit <laughs> what they say, maybe wrongly. Um, Brad Binder, you can't read. Impossible to tell what he's feeling, but... It, it clearly took a lot of effort to drag out that lap time and the sprint simulation that he did on that same day was not very good. And it, it, it he sort of semi-acknowledged that they may have improved their one lap pace potentially at the expense of what they were doing on Sundays, which you don't want. Um, Jack Miller is better than he looks, clearly. Like, better than he's looked in terms of the of the lap times when he when they actually... When he gets the chance to properly work in a normal GP weekend mode, expect them to be, get much closer. But I, I don't know. I don't I don't love it. And again, it goes back to the to the point that Matt made. People just aren't struggling. And that's that's a problem. You have a you have a good bike with good riders, but what you're missing, I think what they're missing is enough for it to be unsatisfying. That's that's how I would put it. Yeah, it's even if KTM had just had a normal KTM winter that wouldn't be enough with how other people are stepping forward. From what you're saying about the lap times and some of the hints, it feels like KTM might have had a slightly worse version of a KTM winter. And talking about rewriting code between runs, talking about the amount of changes, the amount of data they've got to go through. We've said so many times in this podcast, people are doing better when they have less things to fiddle with, less things to analyze. They've just got a comfortable package and they're going with it. And KTM is still in this incessant hunt for that and doesn't seem to stick with it for very long when it finds one. Yeah, that's part, of, that's part of the thing. They've been testing, testing, testing. And the, the problem with that is, like, you hope that it pays off further into 2023, obviously. But before that, you're going to take a bit of a hit for Portimao. It's, it's, it's inevitable because you haven't, everyone else has gotten basically at least a day to optimize 
what they will have for the Portimao race weekend. And yeah, conditions will be a bit different, but they won't be that different. It won't be underwater. Yeah. It won't turn into another track. It won't be Monaco or whatever. Um, you can hear a little bit notes of doubt coming in from Binder about what the season will be like. Because he also, like, there's a rear grip issue, which, you know, there always is for everybody, but particularly in this case, like rear grip, rear contact. And he says that to improve it, they need hardware, not software. So it's not a setup thing. It's not an electronics thing. Need new bits, which after a full winter of testing, truckloads of yeah, bits it's not is ideal, not is great. <laughs> yeah. um, also, Paul Espargo had a much worse test here than he did in Sepang. That's not great. Uh it goes to Fernandez progressing slowly but surely. That's all right. Yeah, bless him. <laughs> Augusto Fernandez doesn't... Is he not in a struggler bracket, is he? But sole rookie in the field on a gas, gas branded KTM, it's not It's not a great place to be. Going by his race run, like he's, you know, he's, he's working. The team clearly likes him a lot. KTM clearly likes him a lot. A lot of emphasis on how clever and a good listener and a good sponge learner he is. But that does not mean he won't be lost to begin with. And going from his race run, I think you'd probably expect that in round one at least. Although not not that far off. Well, we seem to have got to the end of testing with potentially 12 to 15 podium finishes, two or three candidates for the back row, but one clear championship favourite, which is a fairly fairly satisfying position to be in and just a just a mere 42 races to to sort it all out which in some ways means this test could be completely irrelevant because you've even with homologation some parts being set we've got an awful lot of racing an awful lot of development time set up refining time through race weekends to come but yeah i, I certainly have ended this this weekend and everything you guys have passed on from the track with a, a a great reluctance to put any money on anybody other than Banyai for the title, but much more keen to go and put a fiver on Mark Alex Marquez winning a race in the next six months. We'll get on to predictions in a lot more depth next week when we come back and actually preview the season because we're just two weeks away from the season opener now. So join us back here on the Race Matter GP podcast one week from now to hear us commit to some very bold, hopefully, predictions that might be uh, looking very daft in a few weeks. But I think championship favourite-wise... We're not going to go far, too far wrong with that one. See you back here next week for all of that. The Athletic.